Stand and deliver. Welcome to the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast with your host, which is me, uh, Rodders. Hello. What's all this about then? It's a podcast about comedy. Uh, I won't be delivering jokes, at least not not directly. That's not what this is about. Uh, We give you a little peep behind the curtain of comedy and let you into the weird world that uh, our stand-up comedians uh, inhabit. Uh, It involves a lot of late nights, too much time in service stations and uh, performing in all kinds of some wonderful and some just plain weird venues and uh, well I'm uh, as well as a comedian I'm a podcaster obviously hence hence you're hearing hearing me now and I'm also the promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club we run monthly shows up above Smoking Billies in the centre of Reading this show is brought to you with a little help from JokePit.com they connect comedy and what what does that mean it's not just a snazzy strapline they are a ticket selling site but the main difference is they are exclusively for stand up comedy so if you're a promoter listening to this and wanting somewhere a bit less crowded a little bit more exclusive to uh, promote your gig and sell some tickets go check them out or if you are one of the millions of people across the UK that loves to go watch a good old comedy show check out jokepit.com type in your local area and it will show you all the shows uh, that are nearby and obviously Stand and Deliver is there, so if you're anywhere near Reading, book some tickets for that. Today's guest is a comedian I've known for quite a long time, Steve N. Allen. You might have seen him on BBC Two's BAFTA and nominated The MASH Report. He's the news anchor bloke, and he's been on BBC Radio Kent, well, still is on BBC Radio Kent, and has been on commercial radio stations all over the country, as well as pretty much every comedy club going. Now, there's sort of an unwritten rule that to be interviewed on this podcast, I either have had to have gigged with you, or you have to have played the comedy club and Steve N. Allen has a very specific stand and deliver claim to fame back on the 25th of February in 2016 was our first ever show at Smoking Billy's and he compared it probably just another night at work for him uh, but for me it was very very exciting I was so terrified because it was the first club I'd ever run uh, and I, I, I just I was more nervous than anyone else on the bill and uh, Steve just turned up exactly on time was sort of so calm and collected and professional about it it made it so much easier and well probably stopped my blood pressure going completely through the roof we recorded this interview at the edinburgh fringe festival and towards the end of the podcast we're also going to hear from my comedy comrade josh masson who is doing a show there as well uh, we, we caught up at, i think i think the uh, local brew dog uh, near cowgate but before we get to our interviews i thought i'd just let you know what i've been up to recently admittedly stand-up comedy has taken a little bit of a back seat for me i might have told you this before but one of my main other interests is rock climbing and on tuesday the 1st of October I'm flying to Kalimnos which is a tiny Greek island in the middle of the Aegean you have to land at Kos and get a boat uh, for a whole week of uh, rock climbing Um, rock climbing is not something I find particularly easy Uh, what I do I do something called sport climbing mostly which is where obviously you have a harness you have a rope you have your B layer controlling the rope below you and when you're outside there are bolts drilled into the rock face you clip into these bolts so if you were to fall off, you would fall down to that bolt and then whatever length of slack was in the rope system. And um, without getting too technical, uh, the amount of slack put into the rope system by the belay is very, very important because that is what stops you hitting the wall and gives you what's called a softer catch. Uh, but the one problem with this is falling is really scary. 
and it is totally against your instinct and it probably ought to be scary because under normal conditions falling is bad uh, but in sport climbing it is just something you have to try very hard to get used to um, and I, I kind of uh, didn't I did more comedy than, than stand up leading up to Edinburgh and so my my, my Climbing suffered as a result, and I just became very, very fearful. Uh, so so I, I hired a climbing instructor, and I've been climbing two to three times a week and really trying to get back into it. It's, it's really a psychological game. It's, I mean, you can never be too strong or too agile uh, for, for climbing, and technique is very, very important, of course, but it is such a mental game. It's a real head game. If I woke up tomorrow... A hundred times physically stronger. It wouldn't actually improve my climbing because I still wouldn't quite have the confidence that I need to to, to take advantage of that when climbing on the rock. Uh, But my head game has been getting better. I really think that as with stand-up, it's all about applying the right amount of pressure. If you apply too much pressure, you freak yourself out, uh, you stop enjoying it, uh, and then you might as well not bother because both climbing and comedy, believe it or not, are meant to be fun. And I think sometimes... Uh, both climbers and comedians forget that uh, so i'm really looking forward to just you know i've prepared as much as i can unfortunately i've strained my calf muscle which is very very frustrating so i'm, I'm trying to rehab that a bit <laughs> before i go uh, but i'm really looking forward to just going out there with uh, some of my best mates and uh, just climbing as well as i can uh, so now i've just got to go out there and and try and enjoy it and uh, hopefully i'll pleasantly surprise myself uh, sorry this has turned into rodder's climbing cast but i just think it is important to do other things outside comedy because comedy can be so obsessive you can be so obsessive over comedy and i, I can't remember who said it. it's probably somebody very famous but somebody said something along the lines of you don't do if you don't do anything off stage what earth do you talk about on stage you just end up sort of talking about comedy and it's doesn't necessarily mean i'm going to be doing jokes about rock climbing but i think it's best it's good to do things where you travel and you're you're just your whole world view is informed and also as much as i love comedy there is more to life than it there is a whole rich lot of things there's a richer plethora of things for us to experience in the menu of life um, as I'm going to term it. Right, so that's probably enough talk of climbing for one comedy podcast. I have been doing a couple of gigs uh, just to keep my practice in because I've got a real fear of if I don't do stand-up for an extended period of time, I'll get an important gig and then I'll get on stage and I will have forgotten how to do it and just forget all my jokes. So that is absolutely terrifying. Uh, but I have been doing some gigs. I'll tell you about them uh, towards the end of the podcast because it's probably about time we got our guest on. We talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about how we met when working at Red. 107. We talk about why he started stand-up and how he kind of started doing stand-up. He found it pretty scary, so that pushed him into radio. And then whilst he was on the radio, he then got back into stand-up and became a professional comedian. I also indulge my inner anorak and we talk about uh, the state of UK radio at the moment, uh, what with uh, local commercial radio stations being shut or networked left, right and centre. And we also talk about uh, his TV programme, The Mash Report, and whether it's harder these days to do uh, satire in this absolutely bonkers and fractious political climate we live in. Recorded at this is Edinburgh Fringe Festival... This is Steve N. Allen. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. We are hiding in Fringe Central, the uh, admin hub, the most exciting part of the Fringe. There are no shows, but there's plenty of photocopying. And I'm with Steve N. Allen. Hello, Steve. Hello. Yes, we are hiding because I didn't bring my official Fringe pass. So at the moment, this feels very undercover. We could get thrown out mid-podcast, and that's how you get ratings. Exactly. A sense of danger is added to the podcast by by this. Uh, So so where, where do we start? We first bumped into each other back at 
Reading 107, uh, a little-known radio station under the stalls of a um, of a football stadium. When you were doing, were you cover, covering Drive? Was it? Is that how you, you got in there? It started out as covering Drive, and then they rebranded to Jack, and I covered some breakfasts when the main host was off. So yeah, I, did, I mean that was back when I was a commercial radio presenter, and I don't do any of that at all anymore, do I? So wowzers, you know the dark secrets about how I started in this comedy business talking at people who weren't listening down a microphone exactly so at least you can force people to listen when they're in front of you but on the radio you've just got to got to hope they are uh, as long as the bosses think they are that's that's the main thing so what was first the radio or the or the stand-up or did they i remember they were going in in parallel yeah technically um stand-up was first i was 16 and there was an audition for a play to come to edinburgh and that you could do anything you wanted at the audition piece in Nottingham. So I went along and my audition piece was two minutes of stand-up. And that's the first time I ever did stand-up out loud. And it was terrifying. The next day, there was an advert in the local paper, the Chronicle Advertiser in Mansfield, for Ashfield AM, which was um, an RSL radio station that was going to operate around August, the Ashfield show in St. Ashfield. And because I'd had such a terrifying experience being on stage doing those two minutes of jokes, I saw that and thought, wait a minute, maybe radio is the way forwards. Um, so stand-up was first by two days. So that's, I, I guess, that, is that, if that's your first gig, you've set yourself up for a very scary first gig. Because was it uh, like an audition is in, you're just in a room with an audition panel? So um, i.e. an audience of about four who are probably not in the mood for laughing. Yeah, audition, I think it was about four, four people on the panel, but also all the other people who were there to act as well. So who, who were worried, people. checking their lines and stuff, and just not paying attention, I guess. Yeah, yeah but at the time, where else could I perform stand-up? So I love stand-up. I was watching it when I was growing up, and that was the only way I could work out that me as a 16-year-old could do it. There was no open mic circuit in Mansfield or, or Sutton. Um, there might have been in Nottingham, but I wouldn't be able to get there. So the only way I could perform stand-up was to like orchestrate it like that to just find people who would be forced to listen and so I did it and it was a bucket list thing fact, before people used the phrase bucket list I did a bucket list thing I wanted to do stand up I did it ticked it off and thought right never need to do that ever again it was terrifying so then I started to get into radio and it was then I think I was 20, 24 the next time I did another stand up gig so that's how bad it was that's how terrifying it was that I didn't do it for 8 years so it sort of put you it, well it it's quenched your first trip but also put you off it at the same time was it to one line do you remember what you were doing roughly was it one liners or no. i guess it must have been because it was only two minutes long or not uh, no i did a bit about walking in a nightclub when the strobe lights on and getting something in your eye and if you mistime the blinking you think the lights are off or if you mistime you think the lights are on even worse is when you're out of sync with it so everything's all ah. and i did something about um there was something about it being like a the best way to rob someone would be to do it, if you're quick at moving, do it during a strobe light. They can't see you move, but they've got their hands in their air. Uh, I can't, it was something about yeah. they're doing the YMCA, so their hands are already in the air, and you can rob them. Um, so it wasn't a one-liner at all. It was weird, is what it was. There was also a thing about public transport, not that I'd ever really used it. I was 16. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was like good old traditional stand-up, I guess. Mm. None of it has lasted to this day. It's not like I've still got a line from when I was 16 that I sometimes do. It was not club-grade comedy, put it that way. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a very, very hard skill to actually do it in two minutes because it's hard enough to cram everything. I mean, I think most sets are better when they're chopped down to their, their finest bits, but 
cramming everything into two minutes that's incredibly difficult especially for someone who's never done it before yeah madness so and then from that you went to the the uh the the, the rsl radio station and you yeah. thought well this will be less pressure because there's not an audience yeah and that was no. right i mean it, it, there's less pressure because there's no instant feedback so you know it's like on radio you in fact, radio suffers from this the most, that people on radio think they're being funny and are convinced of the fact. But there's no evidence. There is literally no evidence that someone's being... You know, sometimes you are, I'm sure they are, and someone might text in and say, that was funny. And radio presenters believe that that then means they are always funny. And you know from doing gigs that you write new material, some of it works, some of it doesn't. And that filter of, think, you know, of being a stand-up thinking, this works, and then you find out through the crucible of people staring faces that it doesn't work, is a filter that radio doesn't have. I guess that's why the more conversational, like the most successful presenters who are known for talking are people like I don't know, Nick Abbott or Chris Moyles. And it's very, well, Moyles particularly, is very, very conversational. So it's not set-up punchline, set-up punchline. It's, uh, so the, I guess that takes the pressure on it because there's no... Po- at the end of a joke... There's got to be a, a payoff, whereas at the end of a, a sentence that's amusing, there doesn't have to be a big denouement. Yeah, and you can get really technical. You've got me on it now. Um, so there are some things that are funny but don't elicit laughter. People get very confused between the two. You can read a book and go, that was a really funny book, but you didn't laugh out loud. Mm. You can watch a sitcom at home on your own, especially if there's no one else around. So there is no psychological imperative to indicate your finding of humour. So you can watch it, never raise a smile, but really enjoy it. But you do that in a comedy club, um, and that's fine for you, but everyone else in that room hears you not laughing. So if no one laughs, but people quietly enjoy it, it no longer looks funny on stage. So stand-up has to be filtered down to the, not just it's funny, but it is laughter eliciting. So do you think there are, because I was wondering how many transferable skills there are from radio, because people say I've got an advantage doing stand-up from when I did radio, but I think really, other than basic storytelling and back timing i think that's really the only because like when i'm rushing to back time to the news or get into the ad break i can usually unless something goes horribly wrong i can usually end a set exactly when the promoter asks me to um yeah i wouldn't necessarily say that's a crucial skill Um, (laughs) i mean it's better to be funny isn't it but if i'm gonna be something at least i'll be punctual (laughs) i think the skill that you do have by doing radio uh, before stand-up is you get rid of everyone's biggest fear everyone's biggest fear is public speaking uh, which is why one of the, the strongest skills you've got or abilities um, like uh, arrows in the in the fletcher whatever it's called the quiver that's mm. it um, when someone heckles they have a fear of public humiliation so you've got the microphone the lights and you can make everyone's attention go to one person you can control that attention and that is their biggest fear the thing that we weirdos on stage don't have is the fear of public focus we crave it because there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And I think the same is true of radio. So you, by doing a lot of radio, you get very used to being public focus. So it doesn't freak you out. I think I don't know if you find that some gigs do. I mean, even for me, sometimes I'll do a gig and it will be maybe there's some pressure on it. And I'll suddenly realize, oh my God, everyone's looking at me. This is terrifying. I don't get it very often, but I only get it when the stakes are high. So, but that, you know, people who are starting out in comedy have that fear, and it's easy to forget. That is, it is horrible that, especially when you think. I think the more I think, oh, this gig really matters, the more wooden and awful my performance is bound to be. The nights where I've done enough prep, but go on as if I don't care. Well, I obviously do care because I, I go out most nights trying to get better and learn. But if I go on like I don't care because I'm, I've, God, I'm not worrying. It's much easier and it goes better, but I don't know how you cultivate that. I'm trying to like 
have a switch or I could just switch on and do it. Whereas like some nights you're just scared or I'm just stressed. Like it's you just yeah, you just you face the fear so often that you're no longer controlled by the fear. You still have it. No one wants to go on stage and not get the laughs that you're after. Um, but if you make your peace with the fact that it might happen, and if it does happen, tomorrow will be a different night, then you get rid of the bigger fear. Everyone, everyone um, outweighs the downside of something to the profit. This is why people don't do things. They think to themselves, I won't take that risk. because." And the end of that sentence is always, imagine how bad it would be if... Dot, dot, dot. Whereas actually, you're more likely to get that positive outcome. The positive outcome will feel great, but you don't imagine it will feel as good as that when you're in panic brain mode. So people talk themselves out of it due to the fear. That's what you don't have. As a stand-up who's done radio, you've pre-burnt away some of the fear. And I guess it's always good to be a little bit afraid because then there's a motivation to actually try. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, if ever you totally stop caring, then why would you bother to leave the house? Why would you drive up and down the M3 <laughs> yeah. for no good reason to do 20 minutes of material? Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. You don't want to become one of those acts who's sort of just dead behind the eyes and is doing it just because they, they don't know anything else anymore. <laughs> it's always good to have other skills, isn't it? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Face the future. Oh, dear. Well, no, then I'll... Oh, no, there won't be any local radio station. I can't even go back to that. I still can't believe I read travel news for three years or so, and I still can't drive. I mean, how do they let me for the job interview? Because <laughs> they don't care. No. They just need to fill the time, don't they? Yeah. Um, that is the, that's the truth of radio. It's weird. Most radio stations that I ever worked for are no longer radio stations due to you know merging and then shutting down and stuff like that. I don't think there's a radio station I've presented on from my commercial days that's actually still there. So, Kiss of Death Allen, that's what you should call me. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? And I did actually have a comedy character on one of my shows called Phil Time, the uh, no good <laughs> no good jock. Um, but yeah, that is scary, isn't it? About, um, how the radio industry is contracted. Because I sort of, I loved stand-up and I loved radio, but I preferred radio because that's always what nine-year-old me wanted to do. So I pursued that as much as I could. But then bits kept falling off it. I like radio station. The, I was used to be main cover presenter for like a drive time in Basingstoke. That then got uh, networked. So then I was like, oh, how, how am I ever going to make this, make this work? So I ended up reading Travel News in London and it just became... Ridiculous. I mean, are you, are you glad now it's not it, the impetus isn't on commercial radio to provide a living for you? Because it, it just became ridiculous, I thought. Yes, I got out very much at the right time. So I, I remember describing it to someone as feeling like being a polar bear on an iceberg. Oh. It, it's right at the moment, but it's getting smaller and smaller. Um, so I got out. I was very lucky. So my radio work now is via the BBC. It might not be there forever, but the funding model of the BBC is going to last longer than the commercial stations I used to work on. Yes. But then some of my commercial radio work now, I'm not a music presenter, but I turn up on talk-based stations. And I think that's what's happened. And it's right that it's happened, actually. As much as it's easy for us to complain because like a revenue stream has disappeared, music radio was about giving people music and actually, it's no longer the best way to get music. We've all done it. You just scream the name of an artist and a song at your smart speaker, and it will do a better request show than any cheesy-voiced yeah. presenter could ever do. So it's always going to happen. The iPod is the thing that started this. That was the crack, and everything else has worked away. But there's still a space on radio for people to do content, and it's just not around lots of songs. It's on a speech-based, content-filled radio station. So I'm happy that I get to do that these days. I am such an anorak, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm less attached than I was, but I'm still such an anorak. But even I have to admit, if I were to explain to a 10-year-old what radio is, it would be very difficult. Like, you can't choose the songs, 
there's only about ten of them, and every so often somebody will try and sell you double glazing for three minutes. <laughs> and it's just, uh, that's what... So now I've just found myself, without even really thinking, there's a few radio shows I, I tune into live just because I'm an anorak and they're on at a good time that I like, and there's certain breakfast shows I like as part of my routine. But if I want music, I've got my Spotify subscription. If I want talk, I have a lot of podcasts where people will talk about specific topics I want to hear about then and there. So I, I've got complete control. Whereas that kind of... But apparently still a lot of people listen to radio, so, so who knows? Yeah. Isn't it something like 3% of listening is done via podcasts? I mean, not to diss the format that I'm currently on right now, and I, you know, I do podcasts myself, but we all seem to be acting as if it's the thing that's changing the world. Three percent of listening is done via this, and and it's to do with having to pay attention and make uh, conscious choices. So if you just pop on the radio and people will talk at you, that's kind of all you need. You don't want to have to be the one deciding all of the conversation topics that you're about to listen to. People like background chatter. People keep telling us that radio is dying. The stats say otherwise, but no one I really know avidly listens to radio unless they've got an old car. So I don't know. Where's the, where's the truth? Do you know what I mean? The stats are saying one thing. The anecdotal evidence of my, maybe it's just my age group, the sort of mid-25 to 30 kind of age bracket. I don't know. I don't know what to believe anymore with radio. Yeah, I mean, the radio listening still very much happens. You're right about the age group stuff. So when you look at the stats for some of the radio, BBC radio stuff I do, your average age is late 50s, something like that, um, which is, you know, not to be too indelicate about this, but at some point that age group won't be with us anymore, so you've got to engage yeah, and the then who, Yeah, who will listen next? And I think, I think sometimes it changes. Like, you, you reach a stage in your life where you can't be bothered with selecting the podcast that you need to listen to, and actually you have a sense of wanting to know what the topics of the day are because everyone else that you know does. So there's then a social imperative to not look stupid in your peer group. And these are the kind of drivers that make people make choices. So that's why you end up reaching an age where you listen to the Today program. You don't want to, but you don't want to be the only one who doesn't. Yeah, and you also get to a stage where you wear your trousers just underneath your armpits. I mean, yep. maybe that's when they'll ever, all the cool kids will start turning back to radio. The one good thing, though, about being on, uh, I think, being in the, the last days of commercial radio, to give it a dramatic title, was that people just stopped caring. When I first started presenting on Reading 107, um, they used to, the program controller would do snoop sessions. They'd sit me down, I'd have to listen to every single link with him and he'd critique it and it was really really difficult to A, listen to me and listen to him telling me I wasn't saying feel good music with enough passion um, <laughs> but then after that, when they were rebranding they just said, they trusted me enough because they knew I wasn't a maniac or going to get them an off-gone complaint, so they were like, yeah do it, do what you like, and I think they did similar with you, I mean I think in the end you, would, you were sort of doing a double header with AJ the newsreader, and yeah. you were just kind of doing whatever you wanted and uh, d satirizing the news for the most part doing phone-ins yeah phone-ins and also doing the thing that i still do this I, my career has always had me talking to myself on the phone so i pre-rec all the caller lines change it so it doesn't sound like me and then do my bits and i'm still doing it now to be fair um and that's the kind of thing where it's very easy for bosses to say you don't need to do this it's a lot of writing work to hit some content and actually you could just you know, say, what a great day, look at the weather, it's top story in this things, give me your opinions, read our phone number, read our email, here's the song. Um, but it was, I liked people not caring, because I cared, 
and they might have been wrong, right? This is what I always think. So if people, if bosses didn't care what you were doing and you didn't care, you'll make rubbish radio. Mm -hmm. But if bosses don't care and you actually do, and I always used to try and record every single radio show and turn it into a podcast because it stopped me um, treading water. Because if by the end of that show you were like, I've done nothing that I'm proud of, nothing that I want to put on social media, then why did I do it? What's the point of wasting three hours of someone's life if I can't make 20 minutes of something that's good? That's a really good way of looking at stuff because I... I really want, often want people's validation uh, for that sort of thing but if you think well as long as they don't care they'll leave me alone to be creative and that's a, mo- that's a much more positive way of looking at things yeah. if I ever end up back in radio I will hope for the most apathetic boss ever <laughs> um, the validation that you need is your own validation so uh, your show this time at the Fringe it's not so newsy your current show it, mm. it, it, was, it was interesting because to be honest with you I'm get, I think a lot of people I'm getting news fatigued yeah. and I was pleasantly surprised where you kind of you talked a bit about Brexit you talked a bit about news but it wasn't like heavy it wasn't like watching um, a panel show about the news it was more about a broader life aspect which kind of encompassed people's attitude to yep. news and so there are actually bits in the show that came from material that I did about the news and then I went through that material and took out the topic just to make the general point because I think you're right I think we're all sick of hearing absolutely everyone give their opinion on Brexit and Trump and the things that everyone's given their opinion on a million times so I wanted to give the opinion without having the topic so like one of the things that I was writing about when I was doing some Brexit stuff was trying to move us away from anger and towards... Like, I have a genuine belief that if you start an argument with someone by saying, you're wrong because it doesn't matter what the rest of that sentence is, they're not listening and you're wasting your breath. So I want to try and find ways to get people to uh, listen to and understand the people they disagree with. And everyone always goes, yeah, that's great. And they presume I'm meaning people who disagree with you should listen to you. But what I actually mean is you should listen to people you disagree with which no one wants to do in this modern world. And if I was talking about Brexit and saying that, then Brexiters or Remainers would both be saying, yeah, but these people are idiots because... And then they're going into why they're wrong. Take the topic away and just say, here's an example of how you should think about it from, you know, maybe you're not the nicest you could be. What could you do to be nicer? And I think that's the same point, but without the Brexit topic, so that people don't have the emergency pushback, kind of like, he said Brexit, I don't think he agrees with me, therefore, no, you're wrong because blah, 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 blah. It's interesting because I, I saw Laura Lex's most recent show and you almost make a very similar point, but come at it from very, I think you went for the more emotional aspect, whereas Laura Lex said, nowadays it's a bit ridiculous because there's no one in the middle, you're either right wing or left wing or... Brexit or anti-Brexit and people are saying oh the EU is the best thing in the world we never would have had anything without it and other people are just saying the the polar opposite and I guess you sort of did the same thing but without having to embed it in in politics I guess it because politics is just a uh, I guess a product of what people are so if you strip the politics away I guess the emotional aspect comes first yeah and I think you could argue all day about the details of the Brexit or the details of the story and the problem is you get you get a small little crack of detail that people can have a splinter argument about you waste your energies there you never cover the main thing so if you take the detail out and just have the emotional like you're a human aren't you why are you hating someone so much question your own hate then I think you can walk back towards the centre ground without tripping up over the details of Brexit or whichever story you're particularly upset about because I've turned out, it must be obviously it must be amazing fun. I hope, at least I hope it's amazing fun being on uh, the television doing a topical show. But 
does it not get aggravating? Because I'll see on your Twitter sometimes you'll, you'll post up a clip you did, like, for example, when they were trying to find somebody to run UKIP. Uh, you blew up a balloon, drew a face on it and said, what was his name? What did you call him? Balloon, oh Mr. Balloonhead or something. <laughs> it was utterly ridiculous. And then I think the next sketch was lampooning the Labour Party. Uh, so you could, you, the MASH report generally bashes everyone. Mm. That seems to be the point. Yet you will have people calling you left-wing bias or right-wing bias. Yeah. Does that not get aggravating? Because all you're trying to do is make people laugh and the vehicle is just news. I suppose it's been long enough that this has happened that I now feel I understand confirmation bias enough. So if you say two things and one, and a person agrees with the first one, they don't even see it as something you've said. They don't hear it as an opinion. They go, yeah, that's right. And then you say the thing they disagree with, and they're like, how dare you say that? That is wrong. That is biased because I disagree with it. And like, what's happened there is, you idiot, you don't know what bias means, right? That I've said two things, I'm balanced but they don't take the first one as fact or as having happened because they go, it's right. Of course they'd say that, it's right, because they agree with it. So they've got this, and we all do it, and I must do it as well. And if I watch this documentary on confirmation bias, the researchers who do it actually uh, test themselves. And these people know more about confirmation bias than we ever will, and they are still guilty of doing confirmation bias. So it's impossible to cure ourselves of it, but when you can spot it in other people, you think, okay, now I understand why you think we hate Corbyn or why you think we are uh, Tory haters because all the bits that you, that you don't hate you've just taken as fact and agreed with and then anything that sticks out for you it's like there's a problem there's a lovely um, picture, a screenshot of the complaints that the BBC got and people had shared it because number one the most complained about thing was uh, the, the fact that someone on Bake Off had left some ice cream out of a freezer. Right? That was the most complained about <laughs> thing. And then below it was uh, the number of complaints saying that the BBC was pro-Israeli. And then the third one was the number of complaints saying they were anti-Israeli. And everyone's sharing it going, look at this, people complain more about Bake Off. For me, the interesting thing was the numbers in two and three. It was roughly the same number of people who'd complained about the total opposite bias, but they had seen it. And if you asked them and tested them, they'd say it was definitely there's a bias because of this filter. Like you were just, ex- you don't count the stuff on your side of the scale, and then you get really upset about stuff on the other side of it. Yeah, does does that? Can they, the BBC, then infer that they're more or less down the middle if they're getting equalish yeah. complaints, or is that a trap to fall into? The, it's, I think sometimes you've got to be careful. I think um, saying we get equal complaints from both sides is a little bit like Bernard Manning saying, you know, I'm not racist. I insult everyone. Well, that's uh, that's not the opposite of being racist. That's, you know, you are omni-racist. Well done. Um, And if people always say... uh, Great name for a fringe show, isn't it? (laughs) Omni-racist. Yeah, and if you insult, if you upset everyone, maybe you're balanced or maybe you're just a git. (laughs) Completely insane. It's It's not proof of balance that everyone is upset. But... I do think um, people who complain on Twitter a lot misunderstand what the BBC's balance is meant to be. They, they will say, the BBC's meant to be balanced. How could you say this one thing? Well, balance isn't everything being on the fulcrum of the um, seesaw. Balance is having things on both sides of the seesaw. There will be things you don't like, and there will be things you do, and that's balance. Rather than, oh, I can't believe there was one thing I disagree with, you're meant to be balanced you're wrong I don't also I think you must have a very hard job keeping the MASH report balanced because some weeks some parties are going to do sillier things than others and some parties on average just do wackier things Uh, so how how 
do you keep it balanced? Is, is it like W1A where you've got somebody in a, in a suit for the, with a clipboard checking the, the balance or whatever? I think, well, look, whoever's in government is always going to be the greater target for lampooning. They mm. do more. They make more decisions. I mean, you're already you've got two groups of people, one who are making a decision that will impact someone's life, but one who's saying, if we were to get into power, we'd do this. Well, one requires greater scrutiny. They both require scrutiny, but the greater scrutiny should be the people who can actually change laws. So... Balance, again, it's a word that people choose their definition of it in the way that suits what they like. So I don't think it has to be like 100%, unless it's on the run-up to an election, the perda period type stuff. It doesn't have to be 100% balanced. It's just about representing you know, the world, society. Are you given guidelines by the BBC or not? Because I, I want to dispel any sort of mad conspiracy theory where your, all your uh, right-wing material will be put in the bin or whatever. Oh, there's none of that at all. I mean, in terms of other radio stuff that I've done, where I'm more closely linked to the, the people who are governing the guidelines. Um, so I did a, a political show on a radio station on the run-up to the last election, and were given guidelines about balance. That was perda period. This was <clears> like the tightest it could have to be. And that wasn't saying, you can't say this. It's saying, if you say that, you've also got to cover this. And they made a really interesting point saying balance in a show isn't in a sentence or necessarily in one episode. You can do balance across the series. Oh, and you, know, you have to allow yourself to go one way and then make sure you go the other way to make sure it's fair. But balanced is both sides of the seesaw, not in the middle of the fulcrum. So do you find, with this show you're doing currently, have people come along because of the MASH report, that, have that brought extra people in? And are the people that watch comedy on TV the same that turn up to comedy clubs? or They are... Um, well, I suppose I wouldn't know, would I? Because the people who don't turn up to comedy clubs I wouldn't see them at my gigs. That's a good point. But <laughs> what I mean is, when they turn up, do they, do they know what to do that is live entertainment because you, you can tell immediately if you have a group of people who have never been to a comedy club before they either behave too well or absolutely appallingly and there's yeah. nothing in between <laughs> yeah you get a lot of people who would have better manners in a cinema than at a comedy gig yes but that's club work really when you tend to get you know drunks on a saturday night for a show like this up in edinburgh yeah i guess i get people who might not be used to, to turning up to club gigs so they're not as raucous but you just you just coax them in a little because they're possibly used to watching comedy on their tv they don't have to interact as i said earlier sometimes you find something funny without externalizing it i'm a little zero tolerance about that when i'm on stage like you've got to be in the right mood to laugh otherwise why is a person going to do jokes so you know meet me halfway um, I think you can coax people out of their shell. So mm. I guess I have had more TV viewing type mentality turn up to the show. But as long as you know what you're doing, you can, you can get them to crack a smile. Yeah, and I thought the thing that I found um, interesting, particularly about this fringe, I've been uh, watching quite a lot of people who I've, who I've I've just thought in my head, oh, I've seen them as club comics. I've seen them smash out amazing short 20 minute sets, and then suddenly they're given an extra 40 minutes and that's it and suddenly there's a whole extra dimension do you did you find it kind of liberating being given i guess you've done hours before but is it is it liberating when you suddenly have to because i guess you go through months and months of doing lots of clubs and then now you've got an hour to put together is that liberating or or is it oh god more work (laughs) um i mean it is more work but it's it becomes the thing you want to do and you're right that making going on stage for 20 minutes and doing funny is great of course it is we are nothing other than vain creatures yeah. that go on stage in front of people and when people laugh and clap yeah we feel nicer about it but having longer to actually make a point 
and then sell that point rather than just here's what I believe like here's the humorous way I'm going to explain explain the logic of my point and hopefully it lands that way um it just seems way more worthwhile I because the whole show this year is about convincing people they might be slightly nicer to other people and if someone does it once that will be worthwhile I know it's it's like the cliche of like if I make one person laugh that's been a terrible fringe. But, um, <laughs> but if, honestly, if I made one person who came to the gig think for a second, like, oh, actually, I don't have to talk myself out of doing the nice thing now. I could just do it. I could do a nice thing. That's all it takes. I mean, there are seven billion people in the world. If each person did a nice thing once a year, that's a lot of niceness. That's true. I won't ruin the show for anyone, but there's a lot in it about simple stuff like, uh, etiquette in coffee shops yeah. and it is true that if everybody started just behaving a little better it on aggregate would make have to make would have to make the world better there's no way it couldn't and it's it's quite nice to have a show that has a point but it's the least heavy-handed thing ever yeah. you're literally talking <laughs> about how to be a bit nicer in a coffee shop rather than lecturing an audience about morality so yeah. it's interesting and at the end of the what's not meant to be a lecture i even then talk pull it back from saying like, i'm not saying you've got to be nicer all the time you just have to be a bit nicer a bit of the time and that's it, because you're right, it is the maths, that if everyone does that and that spreads, then the world is such a better place and no one feels like they've been put out. And if you're not capable of doing that, then you really are evil, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brilliant. So I'm not quite sure when this is going to go out. So if you want to uh, plug your website, it's probably the, the most convenient thing. Um, and uh, when, when is the next series of The Mash Report out and all that lot? So where can people find you uh, yeah on twitter at mr stephen allen mr stephen allen.co.uk for the website um uh, there's a podcast every week i do that i'd love people to download with the bbc we're on the bbc comedy page as well so search for stephen allen's week um the mash report is september to late october but i think we're off air before brexit which is either good or bad i don't well, know if that if if it's it's, happen, yeah exactly. it might be we'll catch it next time around yeah that's don't like saying Haley's comet isn't it could be any time <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah so we're back on or we've been back on depending on when this comes out but that'll still be on iplayer for a while so yeah that's a plus excellent steve and alan thanks very much enjoy the rest of your fringe thank you this is the stand and deliver comedy podcast that was steve and alan do make sure you check out the mash report it's on bbc2 and of course on the bbc iplayer uh so uh, i thought now i'd share you another bit of audio i recorded at the fringe i bumped into josh masson while i well, i was trying to get a ticket to sean morley's show but it uh, sold out so we both kind of dejectedly walked out into the street i didn't recognize him he's had a snazzy haircut and uh, it was wearing contact lenses uh, so uh, I didn't recognise Josh 2.0 but he he recognised me uh, which probably means I haven't improved myself in a very long time uh, but that's what's great about the Fringe I haven't seen Josh for ages uh, but I just bumped into him on the way out of a venue and uh, we, it was really really nice to catch up so uh, here we are we're chatting in Brewdog and uh, my goodness it rather sounds like I've had a few drinks well because I had the first thing I did was get Josh's name wrong. Stand and deliver comedy podcast. I'm Brewdog, nourishing myself with beer, and uh, I've bumped into Josh Mashen. <laughs> I spelled his name Mashen. That's when he's sponsored by the Mash House. I'm with Josh Masson, and uh, I didn't recognise you, but you recognised me, and we couldn't get into Sean Morley's show, but we're here now. We, we are here, yes, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to see a li- d- another show a bit later on. Um, yeah, just sitting outside, enjoying the sights of Cowgate, I guess, yeah last time I spent any considerable time with you was Bath when we did a competition. Uh, that is true, yes. Yeah, I remember we sat in the prep, ate some yoghurt, then went and did the competition. Neither of us got through. Um, 
it was an experience yeah. <laughs> it's another day in the life yeah. <laughs> so how is your show going at the moment what's it called it's called Long Man Short Man it's you doubling up with Phil Green yeah. how's it Oh, everything I say rhymes today. How's it been? Uh, yeah, it's, it's been okay. Yeah, we've been getting decent audiences. They've been quite nice for the most part. So, um, yeah, I'd say this is definitely one of the best fringes I've done. Yeah, I've definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, very much. Yeah. It's a two-week run. You're in the caves, which literally they are, they are caves. Yes. They drip. Does this... I think it lends itself to weird, surreal, or even dark type comedy yeah uh, do you, does your humour feel out of place in that kind of environment or does it not make any difference uh, I mean I wouldn't necessarily consider my humour particularly dark or surreal although there are certainly like moments of that but it seems to fit in well there yes yeah um, yeah, it's quite a strange little room. It's a bit like a church. We've got almost like pew-like seating. but um, And it does get very hot in there. But uh, it's a nice room apart from that, yeah. It's a nice cave. Uh, it's weird how every single show is almost totally different. Um, have you had some shows that have been... What was like the, the last show you did like? Uh, it was pretty tough, to be honest. The one we did earlier today was, yeah, it was quite tough. Uh, yeah, we just had a load of people in. There were one family, but they all worked for Virgin Media for some reason. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was very strange, yeah, and uh, yeah, just a bit of a tough thing. Uh, yeah, so I could get a discount, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, yeah. 20% off on uh, Sky Sports. Yeah, yeah. If somebody threw a voucher in my bucket, I would take it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I would see if... I don't know if, if they actually enjoyed the comedy on. I reckon that would have been a possibility, but they they were they, yeah they did not have a good time. But yeah, weird. It sounds like the corporate gig you didn't sign up for. Yeah, uh, very very odd. Um, like Virgin Media, they sign you up and then you're locked in. Yeah. Ridiculous. What I've been tr- trying to do, I'm trying to do a slightly different set every day. So I've been trying to put in new material, like and like edit like old bits and just like so not everything's the same every day. So that's what I've been doing this on keep myself fresh I really because there's no real I always say right I'll sit for an hour and I'll do some writing and sometimes some days I've done it but really I wish I'd just taken up a load of new material to Edinburgh because there's no time here you're running around like a mad thing I think next year maybe I should bring up a bucket load of new stuff because at the moment I've run out of new stuff I ran out a couple of days ago yeah no, I agree. It's a good idea to try and bring up lots of new stuff. I think I'm probably at a bit of an advantage just because I do quite short-form stuff anyway. So when I think of an idea, it's literally probably two lines long. And it's not really a bit as such that will need like loads of fleshing out. So I can just take it out and just do it on the day. Um, so, yeah, so I'm probably an advantage for that reason. Um, but, yeah, no, I think this is a perfect place to test out new material and really hone it because you're just gigging so much, yeah. And quite often, the audiences, I wouldn't say they're hot, they're hard, but they've seen a lot of comedy. They're, a lot of them, I, d- I tend to find they're polite, but if you get a laugh, then you it's a laugh that's been hard won, I find. I do agree, yeah. Um, yeah, you do get some very sort of comedy savvy audiences who are looking for something yeah a bit a bit more yeah complex and just a standard dick joke um, but yeah what we found especially because our show's on in the morning we tend to get a lot of older audiences and they tend to be a bit more comedy savvy um, you're in the, oh my god you're only half an hour later than I was last year Yeah, <laughs> I became the dad crash the mums would take the kids to the children's Kelly downstairs in the counting house and the dads would go upstairs and we'd look after them are you finding similar? Uh, not really in, honestly most of our audience have been like retired couples that seems to be the majority of our audience that's lovely 
lovely. They're, they're very generous with the bucket. They are, yes, yeah, yeah, which is good, yeah. But they're also, if they do enjoy, they don't know if they're enjoying themselves or they're being polite or whether they're enjoying themselves just but not hollering and whooping like people of our age do. So they're quite a hard audience to read because they'll never openly tell you that they're either loving or hating it. Yes, yeah, no, no, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, we had, we had, um, I remember we had a tough show last week, but the audience afterwards were very generous with the bucket. And it was like, well, that's nice, but could you have shown your appreciation in some other way by perhaps laughing? That would have been, yeah. We've got one more show to go? Uh, yes, we've got one more show tomorrow. So, yeah, 11.35 at the Caves. So, yeah, um, looking forward to it. Yeah. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. So that was me catching up with Josh Masson at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, go find out more about him at Joshua underscore Masson, M-A-S-S-E-N on Twitter, or go to joshmasson.wordpress.com I'm saying his name a lot now just to make up for mangling it in the beginning listening back to that I had no idea how how croaky my voice had got I think that's what you get for doing gigs at half past midnight till half past 1am every day Uh, right I just thought I'd tell you that I have actually been doing a couple of gigs I haven't just been climbing Uh, the second week of this month uh, was the triumphant return of Stand and Deliver my, my own club I compared it and it was brilliant fun we had Harriet Dyer headlining. Everything just went really well. From a promoter's standpoint, I love the fact we started the gig exactly on time. I nearly always finished gigs on time uh, because I think it's very important to do that so you you know the acts can get their trains home and your audience members have to get up the next day. It's particularly important if you're running a weekday gig, but it can be very difficult for various reasons, mostly because the acts go walkabouts just before you want to start the show. Comparing was just great fun. I got to do loads of uh, ad lib. And uh, it was really, really good fun. I, I probably haven't invented this technique, but I, I, I came up with a with a fun technique that, that I used for impri- improvising. Where I, I, in my head, I carried three individual written jokes, and I just thought, right, I'm just going to talk around these, and if my ad-libbing goes nowhere, then I can just cut straight to the joke. So it's called, sort of like ad-libbing, but with the safety net of a few jokes. Um, because what you don't want to do is bring an act on to complete silence because that makes their job really difficult. The point of a combo, of course, is to get the act onto a big cheer and set the room up properly for them. Otherwise, you're just not doing a job properly. Last week, I was in Winchester at the Off the Rails comedy night. Really, really good fun. And despite the terrible weather, it's probably one of the wettest Tuesdays since Tuesdays began. Uh, they, they still managed to get a decent number of people in. It's a lovely venue. It's like, a, I guess, in kind of an outhouse on the back of a pub. And it's mostly used for uh, uh, bands and, and musical performances. So it's got a brilliantly snazzy lighting rig a proper stage and it was just really really good fun the only thing that marred it slightly uh, a row of people that sat at the back turned up late and they just chatted through most of the, of the show which is just a bit galling isn't it it's really annoying i mean it is unfortunately an occupational hazard um and a couple of the acts uh, called them out on on, on their behavior um and they didn't even really seem to be enjoying it and i reckon they'd probably drunk a bit too much uh, I mean, if they wanted to have a chat, fine. There were so many other rooms in that pub building that they could have just gone and had a chat. So, so why do it? And what was what's really strange is the, these sort of people just seem totally unaware. The rest of the audience were behaving impeccably and really, really good fun. And did, did could they, could they not sense that maybe they were doing it wrong? I guess when you've had a few drinks, you 
you just don't realise. Uh, but I would love to go back there. It was a really nice night. And apparently uh, Winchester's a really pretty uh, city, but um, I-, I couldn't see any of it because it was pitch dark and raining. So-, so I asked the audience if I get stuck here because the trains have been a bit dodgy tonight, uh, what's there to see in Winchester other than the cathedral? And there was this long silence and a bloke near the middle of the room just called out, we've got a nice hill. Um, so great, fans of hills descend on Winchester now you can have a fun day of, of going up and down a hill um, he then sort of clarified his point uh, by saying well you can see the cathedral from the hill and, and I like that because it's uh, practical and money minded gets you around the entrance via the cathedral doesn't it you can still take a nice photo right that's almost it for this podcast let's just let you know what's going on at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club this month our next show is on the 10th of October our venue is of course Smoking Billies at St Mary's Butts in the centre of Reading and I know I always say this but this lineup is particularly amazing comparing the evening will be Reading's own and my comedy comrade Lucas Jolson he's performed a number of 10 minute sets uh, across the years at Standard Deliver but he's never emceed it for some reason which is a bit bizarre seeing as for years and years he ran his own gigs in Reading so so he's well versed in comparing and I I think it's going to be terrific fun having him host the night and our headliner is Beck Hill I mean if you haven't seen her just type Beck Hill now into YouTube uh, B-E C Hill, you should know how to spell that, especially if you're from Winchester. And, uh, well, she does this amazing uh, visual comedy with flip charts. Uh, just look her up on YouTube. She is really quite spectacular. So that's the 10th of October. If you go to standanddelivercomedy.com, that will take you straight to the ticket site and you can buy them now. Uh, they are an absolute bargain. Or go to the Facebook page, just type in Stand and Deliver Comedy Night and click on the big blue book now button. A couple of highlights from my gig diary. I'm actually away a lot in October. I'm just about to go off to Greece climbing. And then end of October, I'm off to uh, Portugal to do some presenting work for Kiss FM Portugal. We're covering the, for the, I think this must be the fourth year I've done this. We're covering the Portuguese Masters Golf Tournament. I'm very excited about that. I do follow my Twitter at Rodders, R-H-O-D-D-E-R-S for all information on where you can hear me on that radio station. Uh, but I am doing some gigs on Halloween, for example. I will be at Rock the Attic in Bista. That'll be a fun night. And then Tuesday, 5th of November, remember, remember that I'm performing at the Purple Turtle in Reading. That's Carl Richards' gig. And on Wednesday, the 6th of November, I'm in Oxford at a comedy night called A Club If You'd Like To Go. I think it's the only comedy night in history uh, that has been named after a Smith's lyric. Uh, for more information on all these gigs, if you want to come along, go to rodders.com, R-H-O-D-D-E-R-S.com and click gigs at the top. Uh, right, that's just about it. Finally, I'm just going to say, please write us a review in iTunes and share this with your friends because the more reviews we get and the more people listening, the more like them to make more of these episodes episodes and it's just more fun isn't it why keep this podcast secret thanks very much for listening i'll see you on the next episode this has been rodders for the stand and deliver comedy podcast <laughs>